This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 57 with Phil Hesketh. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. In this episode, we have Phil Hesketh. Phil is the founder of ConsentKit, which is a UX research tool that helps teams gather and manage consent from their participants and do that at scale. Phil joined us to chat in great depth about gathering and managing consent from research participants and managing that data and consent at scale. He talked about their platform, but also went into a ton of detail about gathering consent. We talked about the difference between consent and informed consent, why it matters, and how it can impact your research in a lot of ways. We also talked about staying legally compliant in doing UX research work and the implications of things like GDPR, and how to stay on the up and up to protect ourselves and our participants. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius is an all-in-one space for researchers to organize and analyze data, capture insights, and share outcomes with your team. Transcribe audio, visualize themes, capture findings, and have a report created for you automatically, which you can share with anyone in moments. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E. L-I-U-S-L-A-B dot com. Okay, let's get to it. Hey. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thanks. How are you doing? Awesome. Appreciate you jumping on and joining us for the show today. Would love for you to maybe introduce yourself, talk a little bit about what you do and, and your background. So for folks listening, if they don't already know who you are, give them a sense of who we're chatting with today. Yeah, sure. So my name is Phil Hesketh. I'm the founder of ConsentKit. So we are a platform to help research and design teams to obtain and manage informed consent and do that operationally at scale. So my background predominantly is in design. I've been a user researcher and do more research in the last sort of four or five years or so. Before that, for about 10 years, I was in uh, UX design uh, and I'm based here in sunny Manchester in the UK. Sunny Manchester. I don't know if I've ever <laughs> heard that many places in the UK described as sunny. Are you are you being cheeky or is that is it honestly sunny there? A little bit, but it is actually sunny at the moment, which is unusual. So we're feeling I'm feeling a bit more confident about the weather here than, than normal. <laughs> okay. And see, that's the reason I ask is because I don't I've never lived in the UK, but I understand that the summers can be cloudy and gloomy. Is that right? Yeah, they're definitely yeah, they keep you on your toes. It's like sunglasses and waterproofs at all times. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that you're prepared. Anyway, thanks again for jumping on to to chat about this stuff, particularly what you're doing with Consent Kit and and how that pertains to research. I think is a, a a very useful topic, especially for the people who tend to listen to this show, which are mostly UX researchers, product researchers, even market researchers, right? Mm-hmm. So let's maybe zoom all the way out when we talk about consent and things like that with research. I mean, just what does that actually even mean? So for folks who aren't already thinking about that or maybe unfamiliar, what does that even mean? Yeah. So there's actually a difference between just consent and informed consent as well. And I think it's worth calling that out is that consent is just it's typically you agree to the terms of some kind of engagement or relationship with someone. Whereas informed consent is is really much more, there's a lot more detail. It's not just a simple question of you happy to take part or not. It's like you need to know a bunch of stuff beforehand uh, so that you can make a reasonable decision about whether or not you want to take part and you're happy with with yeah with what's about to happen um so yeah in the a lot so, so for example like in the context of research it's things like what is the project about like maybe why you're talking to them what kind of what they, they might expect from the session what kind of information you're going to record like what you're going to do with that information like who else is going to see it and then also what are their rights under you know various data protection laws which might be applicable to them so in, in europe and for european citizens that's gdpr for example so what rights do they have to that and then how can they actually exercise those rights if they if they want to 
Yeah, for sure. And GDPR is, I think, probably the best example in the U.S. There's CCPA, which is very similar. It's almost U.S. version of GDPR in, in a simplified explanation, I suppose. I'm curious, I mean, how did this become such a, a central focus for you that you said, this is a challenge that we want to help people solve? Yeah, sure. So it's actually started for me probably back in mid-2016. And I was became really interested in design. I just re- retrained to do a master's. And at the time, got to write the th- the th- as a part of the thesis for that, I was really looking at just opportunity to spend three or four months to really deep dive into something. So I started to, when I was trying to find a topic for that, I started to really look at design itself and like where, what design, where design was going and what was happening. And I noticed that there was a thing called the design index and the design index was basically, they tracked the standard and poor 500 or the S and P 500. And they tracked 50 companies who were using design as a strategy or a strategic level within terms of decision-making within the organization. So that's like the highest level of this design maturity model. And they tracked them over a period of 10 years and they saw that these companies like massively outperformed everybody else. So it was like, I think it was like 213% more than others. So I had this bet that, okay, design is is really like a strategic differentiator for businesses and for organizations when they can get to that level. And I also sort of started to think, well, where has that impact been, you know, like the most? And I noticed it really, it was in in the consumer marketplace. And if you look at like the proliferation of the internet, it was almost totally saturated and there's been huge disruption over that with the last sort of 10 or 20 years is what the internet's done to that industry. And then I started to also then look like, well, where hasn't it gone? Things like healthcare, education, government, financial, like all of these things hadn't really been as sort of affected at the time. And I just made a bet. I was like, okay, well, companies either moving into this space to disrupt them or companies who are maybe going to diversify because they can't really go much further in the consumer space are going to move into this. And if we then start to bring designs as a strategy into that, like we're potentially dealing with more and more vulnerable people and more vulnerable audiences. Uh, and it was like, are we prepared as designers to do that? So there's no, at the time, certainly, like in probably still the cases, there's not much of a, a sort of formal education around you know, things like consent, data management and stuff. And it's still a bit like the Wild West in terms of like how we're doing stuff. And we're now starting to, you know, obviously this since 2018, we've had the GDPR and these data regulations are becoming more and more of a thing. But certainly in these industries, like healthcare, for example, and fintech, it's like a much, much more regulated. So you have to be a lot more careful about how we approach things and what we do. And so I started to really pay attention to sort of design teams and I was really interested in ethics and being like, how do these kind of conversations happen and what's going on? And as I was doing that research, I noticed that informed consent really wasn't, was was like an afterthought almost. It was something that people would do and they would just, they would maybe get a consent form from a previous project, copy it over and just sort of use that again. And then when GDPR came out, all of a sudden, this kind of relationship with data became way, way more prevalent. I mean, it wasn't just about ethics in terms of, are we doing the right thing? It was actually like, oh, there's this kind of risk now for organizations who aren't doing this. And it felt like informed consent for me was really sat in, right in the middle of all of that. And I think that obviously there's a huge ethical component to, to informed consent and all of the challenges that kind of wrap around that. But also really from a, in terms of an opportunity, for example, to create psychological safety for people to give them the mechanism, it's like a legal mechanism for them to to pull out or to, to change their mind and all, all these kind of things. But also, yeah, there was this regulatory risk as well, which is like, actually, we need to we need to be able to evidence the fact that we have permission to use the data in this way. And then beyond that, really, it was like, okay, well, actually, like the, there are so many innovations now in terms of like research repositories and stuff like this. And also against this backdrop of like democratizing research, that there just felt like loads and loads of challenges, loads and loads of question marks just around this kind of fairly innocuous form, which sits in the middle of this, in the middle of this process. Yeah. Okay. Really interesting. I mean, there's a lot that you shared there and a couple of points that I, I want to touch on a little bit deeper. I mean, as opposed 
I should say with regard to consent versus informed consent, I think that makes enough sense, right? Like it's one thing to gather consent, but it's another to make sure that somebody really understands what they are consenting to, what their rights to that data are and all those things. The one thing you touched on with that is <laughs> I'm sure it sounds familiar to people is like, we've, we got a consent form from a past research project, plug and play, reuse that and had somebody use it again. I'm going to ask the obvious questions because I want to hear your answers to them, right? But what's the problem with that? Why shouldn't researchers do that if they are today? Yeah, I mean, it comes back to to informed consent, really. It's like if you, a lot of the times, what I see is this kind of a very general consent form, which kind of covers a huge amount of processing potentially that could happen. And it's not really particularly specific. And I think when you look at the the requirements against that are specified in the GDPR, for example, for actually obtaining informed consent is you need to demonstrate a few things. Like one is not only like what the person was asked and what the what was given in that form, but also like how the person was asked as well. And like when they were asked. So like all of these things about like they kind of like wrap around that really. So it's, if you have a very broad general thing, there's a pretty good chance that when you if you get to, if you ever, for example, went to court, which maybe may or may not be likely, it's hard to tell. You that could just actually get thrown out, and you say, well, actually, this isn't adequate. It doesn't really meet the requirements of this. So, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing. I think as well is I think the other thing, just from a more kind of human aspect of it, is that it's it's really like an opportunity. It's like a lot of the times, like we use like really weird language, right? So. You'll say to someone, hey, do you want to come and do a usability test? And it's like, what's a usability test? If you're not in our, in our sort of bubble, it's, we use all these very weird words. We're going to interview you about this thing, whatever. And people get nervous and people don't really understand what these what these things are. And then if you imagine you bring like eye tracking into that or something else as well, and people are like freaking out. It's what are we going into? Because I think it, there's probably a sliding scale as well. And if you're doing like a checkout experience or something like that, it's like one thing. But if you're talking about someone's experiences with, with an illness or something like that, or you're trying to understand more discovery stuff in like a health space, you're potentially collecting like a lot more data, but also you're talking about things which may be either previously traumatic for someone or maybe, you know, quite difficult for someone to talk about. So I would say one of the main benefits for me is of using this like thing up front is that you're actually saying, look, this is what we're going to talk about. And you can maybe either prepare yourself for it, but also you have the ability to actually say no, if you want to, it's actually, I'm not comfortable talking about this, or I'm not comfortable with how you're, what you're going to do with this data afterwards. So I think it's, I mean, obviously there is the compliance like risk there, but I think really for me, the main benefit of not, you know, just taking a cookie cutter sort of approach to using previous consent forms is that you're missing this huge opportunity to actually just remove or address some of those anxieties really, and just be communicate really clearly and plainly with, with someone before, before they turn up to the session. And I've personally, I've been in sessions before where I've done, we've been talking about usability testing. Someone's really clamped up. They're very like, you know, closed. And then as soon as you get to the end of an interview and you're like, okay, I'm going to stop recording now, they just suddenly like breathe this sigh of relief and it's okay. And then the answers start coming out and they suddenly unwind and they realize it's not actually that big of a, that big of a deal. Right. And if you, I think one of the things with informed consent is you can get people closer to that and more comfortable before you start the actual session. So that obviously means you're going to get better outcomes as well and better uh, you know, research. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Actually, that last story was really useful, I think, for folks to hear. One of the things that I used to do when I was doing research for other companies, if it was usability testing, I would actually sandwich that with sort of mini interviews for that very reason, because it, it happened all the time, right? Like when you're doing research with somebody, especially in these contexts, you often don't actually know who that person is. And you're asking them questions that could be, that could feel very intimate or, or sort of private for them, but it's going to help you, you know, make better decisions. And so that's tough because you don't have, you haven't established maybe enough uh, rapport or sort of a, a level of comfort with them. And so that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I guess the two big points that I, I pulled out of your answer to that question was really the reason why you should do this is number one, risk mitigation. So uh, legally speaking, there are certain requirements that we have to meet GDPR, particularly in the UK and the EU is one of them is well, not one of them, the one I would say, right. But then reason number two is it actually 
it sounds to me like it can help you do better research. It can help you build some of that confidence and rapport in relationship with that person so that they're, they feel maybe a little bit more comfortable kind of getting right to the meat of or the heart of the matter that you're looking to learn. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we one of the things that just to build on that usability test but as a term as well is we actually one of the times we started to follow up with people and we did consent very verbally and it was much like a conversation where we were trying to design like what are the things people need to know and like how can we communicate that best with them. And one of the main things that came back from usability testing was people were saying like, I think you're going to test me and I don't want to look stupid. It was just like, well, it's not about that at all. So we put this like extra bit in there. It's like, we're not testing you, we're testing the product. And if you can't do it, or if something doesn't make sense, that's actually super useful for us to find out. Yeah. And the one thing that you just said there, to me, it was just a a very nice, subtle revelation is actually having the conversation about consent rather than just handing somebody a form and saying, we need you to sign this. So it's okay. We record and do all that. It makes it feel very clinical. It makes it does. It makes it feel like you're some kind of guinea pig. Like we're almost doing medical tests on you or something like that for a new shampoo or something like that. Right. But to your point, I think that's really subtle, but like big impact that can have to say, well, we're going to talk with this person. It's not just this thing we're going to sign, but we're going to talk with you about here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's what we plan on learning. Here's what it's not. Here's all the rights that you have on this. It just maybe helps put their mind at ease. And it's not just asking them to read the fine print on something, which let's face it, either A, nobody does, or B, they don't fully understand. And then to your point, maybe feel uncomfortable with. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think that like most researchers will will know this stuff, right? Like they're really good at building a bit of rapport. They're really good at breaking the ice. They're really good at explaining this. One of the trends with I see with like this democratization of research is we get a lot of people who are not researchers who don't have that sort of formal training or don't have that background who are coming into this. And uh, I'd count myself as well amongst that, those people. I'm not like a classically trained researcher. It's just I've read a few books and, and got involved. When you say describing form consent, it's almost like a, ch- a checkbox. But it's actually, I think this is, this thing is a really, it's a really big opportunity to, for a bigger, a bigger thing within within the part of what we're doing. Because also, I mean, what I normally do when we do a session is obviously send the consent form, try to get it at least a week ahead of time because uh, it gives them some time to think about it and read it. Like you don't want them to be sort of rushing through this thing. And then at the beginning of the session, I'll say to them. So normally we have these like granular options in consent kit where you can say. I don't want, I'm happy to be recorded on the screen or I'm happy to, for audio to be recorded or whatever. So I'll, at the beginning of the session, I'll say, do you know, do you have any questions about the content of the consent document? Or, and I'll sort of talk them through that uh, and then just say, I know you've told us this. So I'd like, this is what I've done in response to what you've told me and show them that you have some control. And then usually because you don't know where the conversation is going to go at the end of the session, I'll be like, okay, now we've finished talking about this and we actually know what we've spoken about was there anything that you know that we, that we said in that session that you weren't comfortable with or another chance really to be like okay yeah this bit that bit and redact that as you go forward because really that the consent is almost like when we come on to this in a little bit more detail after but like the consent form is almost then like a distribution license for that what you can do with that data going forwards and i think in this kind of world of repos which is like an amazing thing because we're still trying to sort of prove the worth of research a lot of the time in organizations, but also where when you think about this re- design as a strategic sort of decision-making tool within organizations, it makes a ton of sense to do this. And also it's more ethical because you're not, you're not asking the same questions over and over again to, to people. So it makes total sense like to have repos. Um, but I think that presents like a new bunch of challenges as well, because, because the, the way what happens to this data and our responsibilities to that data also change. It's not as simple as, hey, I'm going to delete this. No one else is going to see this. That na- that nature has pulled has gone from like a push where I am the researcher and I am controlling who sees that and the publication of that those findings within the organization to like a pull where it's like anyone in the organization can access that and see it and they don't necessarily know what they can do and what they can't do with that, right? Yeah, for sure. 
And so where you started on that was something that I wanted to ask too. I mean, I think it seems obvious where, of course, you have to obtain consent before doing research with people. I wanted to ask, I mean, in terms of doing it to this to this depth and, and, and this thoroughly, like where does that fall in the process? Is it more than just simply upfront? Yeah, I think this is really why we built Consent Kit is that it's really difficult to, you might get one or two people in an organization who are really hot on this and they're like, I'm really good at it. They understand what they need to include in the forms and they can write them and stuff. But when you start to scale that process up, um, it's difficult for people to to do that. And the main thing is consistency, really, with, with any kind of data governance and data management. You need to be logging what you're doing consistently. You want to be asking consistently. And then also managing that data consistently as well and like deleting it afterwards. And it's it starts with, I think, if what we saw at like the very early prototypes we were using, we were doing things like Google Forms and, and spreadsheets and like merging stuff together like that and trying to figure out something that would work for us. And a lot of the time, that emphasis really fell in the planning sort of stage of research, how you would put a research project together. And then, but then after the fact, we realized actually this thing, this thing afterwards, like if you say, okay, our retention policy is like 12 months, for example, we're going to keep your recording for 12 months. So you've got this like 12 month gap, which is really easy to forget about because it, once you've done that project, you've done the insights, like you move on to the next project. Like we're going super fast at researchers and there's a lot of pressure on us to, to, to continue to deliver insights and we want to be, we want our work to have impact. But so it's, and then maybe you switch projects or you move teams or go on something else. Like it's really easy to, to drop this ball. And it's like such a simple thing, even like after the fact is like, well, how do you kind of remember to pick up or if, if you leave the company or whatever, like who else is picking that up and who else is taking responsibility for that, that data that you've created on behalf of that person? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and so what is the long tail implications of that? So I don't claim to know GDPR law all that well, which is actually funny in and of itself because it's still so new that even the courts don't seem to know <laughs> the, the GDPR law and how to interpret that as well as they as they claim to. But what are the long tail implications of that, right? So you obtain that consent. The, exa- the example you just gave is, okay, so you have that and you're able to use it in the way that they agreed to for 12 months. But what happens then? Like, what have you seen occur there? Yeah, I mean, typically you need to sell them like how long you're going to keep that data for, right? That's one of the main things in the consent form. And then the expectation is, is that you, you delete that data after the fact. One of the strategies that I, I'm just rethinking about quite a bit at the moment is, um, okay, well, we'll take this data and then we'll just like fully anonymize that data. And then we will, then at that point, it becomes not subject to, you know, GDPR because it's about person identifiable data predominantly. But it's just like the more and more you, you when you really look at anonymization, like you look at like, how do you actually, how can you actually anonymize this stuff? I think that there's something about when, if you have a recording of someone telling the story or you have a snippet, it's like an absolutely bomb quote that you're like, I want to put this quote in because it just beautifully articulates this point. And to really anonymize that, it's, it's really difficult. And it also strips away the, the human, like the power of that storytelling. And so it's even things like a voice is like a, a unique identifier. So you, so you would you would end up with this kind of X-Files, like smoking man muffled voice insights or whatever that would be in an organization. And like, I don't know if they would, I, mean, I wonder on one hand, if they would actually have the power to convey the story in the same way. But also, and I, it's like we would use anonymization as this, it's okay, we're going to anonymize your data. But it's like when you really look at what that means, like it's so difficult to actually do that. And the types of data that we're collecting as research, it's classified as like special category data under GDPR, because even if you just have a video of someone, like with you now, I can tell your gender, I can tell your ethnicity, I can tell all these like different things that, that we're not even talking about, but they're totally implicit just in the, in, the, in the medium of like how we're capturing this data. So it's very difficult to sort of mask that and whether or not you should or not. So I think that the, probably the longer, for me, I think the, the better strategy is to be like, 
let's just be more transparent upfront about what we're going to actually do with this and how this is going to work. And if people are comfortable with it, then just give them the agency to to say so. But at least it's we're not being devious in any way or kind of masking things from people. Yeah, for sure. Really good answer there. Really well explained. We have much bigger problems to tackle, but that would be a fun and uh, also fairly useless startup where we could build something that just <laughs> muffles people's voices and, uh, and gives the X-Files filter to all this stuff and just say, yeah, isn't that cool? You throw all your audio and video in there. I don't think that's the right approach, but that would just be a funny. <laughs> yeah, I, thought I, thought I, really like, I think there is like legs in that though, you know I mean? Because there's, there's a really this with anonymization, there's, there's like true anonymization of data, which is what you're trying to do is minimize the, uh, likelihood of like st- statistical like linkage with other data sets because when it's really with anonymization it's like when you combine it with other data sets so on, on its own you're like i can't tell who this person is but you put one or two other data sets in there and then all of a sudden it's like actually i can tell who this person is now or i can narrow that person down to like, 10 people or five people or whatever and then the more granularity that you have on that the more you can get to it so it's a bit like i was watching the film do you remember the fugitive from like the 90s with uh, harrison ford and it's like kind of an old movie now i guess but it's a great film but there's a bit in this where he's talking on the phone and they're trying to figure out, obviously trying to catch this guy and they hear this train in the background and he's lots the, that's an elevated train. Like it's a very unique sound, you know, and it's like, which cities in the US have elevated trains and it's New York, wherever else he mentions, but they narrow it down to three cities immediately. So it's like right out of this entire, like enormous country, you've just narrowed this down to like these, like these places. And then it's like, okay, now we look at where are all the payphones that are next to those things and then narrow it down even like further. And it's like, right, he's been to like one of these like spots. So even just from that one piece of like information, which is in the background, which you're not even thinking about, it's actually possible to really narrow that down to where, to where someone is and re-identify them. And obviously, again, this is like a sliding scale, right? You know, so if you're doing a usability test with someone, it's probably not, depending on what you're testing, obviously. But if you're doing more in-depth ethnographic stuff with people, it's it's not as, I don't think we can really say like for sure that it's like we can definitely anonymize this data. But what we can do is to find stuff. So that's the blurring of a face or redaction of names, things like that where you start to take out the kind of the clues, if you like, which link these pieces up. So, yeah, I mean, I've started saying now on my consent forms where I'm not actually going to anonymize your data, I'm just going to de-identify your data. But then we usually have a conversation about that because, again, it's it's a weird, it's like a, is it a weird like technical sort of like term or clause? So it, you know, it just needs a bit more explanation. Yeah, I was actually going to say, I mean, share that explanation. I got to believe somebody goes, well, what does that actually mean? So how do you talk to them about that? Yeah, so we, we just say, so basically, I'll just say it's really difficult to like properly anonymize your data and, and what you tell us. There's still a risk that you could be like re-identified. But what I do to try and minimize that as much as possible is I will like redact certain pieces of information. So for example, I can blow your face. I will take you and I can take your names out of it. If you talk about a place or whatever, we can do all that. But it, it really depends. I think that's really contextual based on the type of like study that you're doing, because you've got this kind of trade-off of, is it, yes, you could do that with all data that you collect but really is, is it what's the risk again so you're looking at this making this risk judgment each time and i think where, where this gets a bit tricky is that you're potentially making decisions or we're making decisions based on the other person right so it's like you're removing their agency away from them and that's i think that's really an important point to to put to pull out so it's why i try to have the conversation with them and say and i think this going back to this kind of consent as a distribution license and um, one of the things we want to start exploring now is that we have these things like consent cards essentially which we can travel with data so it's like this can potentially map onto a snippet or so if you're looking at a video in a repo you could potentially see this is what we can actually do with this thing so and that could be you could say like i'm going to share it with my like product team i'm going to share it with the wider company or whatever you know who else have, has access to this but you could also say things like what would you okay what would you like me to do to this 
to this thing. Would you like me to blow your face? Would you like me to do whatever, you know, redact your name or whatever? Or are you comfortable with all of that? But it's really, it gets really tricky because I think people don't fully always appreciate like the consequences of what they're doing as well. So one one of the questions I used to ask is, be like, are you happy for me to share this publicly? And some, someone was like, yeah, that's fine. It's okay. Like, how would you feel if this appeared like on the side of a bus stop outside your outside your home? And they were just like, well, no, I wouldn't like that. So I was like, well, that's what publicly means, right? It's like that could, you've just given us permission to send, essentially do that. So are you, are you actually comfortable with that? I think a lot of the times, again, going back to the point about plain language and usability testing is that these things like de-identification and anonymization and how you share the data, a lot of that is wrapped up in words which which might not necessarily land with people when they're just thinking about it. So it's like, how can you reframe stuff to, to make that as clear as possible? Yeah. And again, I think having that conversation rather than it just being in a form. And, and that really, to me, what I'm pulling out of what you're sharing is really almost at the heart of the differences between simple consent and then informed consent is like, you're having a conversation with somebody, you're making sure they fully understand what they are consenting to, right? Which is just like why you add the word informed to it, but it also just really helps them understand what's happening <laughs> instead of like this, uh, this very clinical feeling yeah. type situation. And with all of that, we're talking a lot about data collection, of course. Now, Aurelius being a repository, people put a lot of data in there. We get questions all the time, and I'm sure you do. So I want to ask you, because I want to hear your answer to this, how can we be GDPR compliant? How can we be CCPA compliant and how we're collecting data, how we're using it? Do you have tips for folks and ways that you typically answer that when they ask you? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I can probably speak more to GDPR than CCPA, but, but typically you've got, you have the, in GDPR, there are six lawful basis for processing any data. And it's, it's really straightforward when you look at it, this is that if you're going to do something with that data, like if you're going to put it to repo, if you're going to synthesize it, if you're going to share it with anyone, that's all That's all counts as like processing data, right? That's what that means. And for your, what's your lawful basis for that? So there are some, it could be a contract that you have with someone, it could be whatever, but typically for us as researchers, this is, this is informed consent. And the risk around that really is, well, if this, would the consent form that we've asked them to sign stand up in court, given how we've utilized this data? And that actually really is, it's almost like that this is a distribution license. So this is the thing which is going to protect us from it. So I think that we, I don't really have all the answers yet about, I think in the, the kind of like push pull dynamic of like how we share data is changing. And also this kind of democratization of like research as well. It's almost like, how do we democratize like governance? It's like the next thing is like, how can we equally distribute that and, and share that out? And that's something that, I think for me, is if you have this, is the best thing we can think of right now is really is can you get the consent form as close to that as possible? How can you be super transparent with what those permissions are so that you don't want to be, someone isn't going to go into Aurelius, find a really great insight and then be like, oh, have we got permission to use this? Like, how do we do? And then I need to go into another system, like log into consent kit and see if we've got this and what we can actually do with it. It needs to be like there, right? And it needs, you, know, you want it to sort of live with, with that that insight but also in a way that is just very simple to understand like we're humans too and like we're rushing and all these other things so it has to be very simple very easy to get and then i guess the other thing is like how can you make that how can you share that accountability or maybe democratize that accountability out so it's there's something you could do where you can you could easily see or just check does this who, who do we need to delete this or when do we need to delete this insight by can i actually use it in this context that i want to on this project and who's the person who's responsible for this? If I have a question about it or whatever, and maybe I can go and ask them and talk to them. So all of these like strings are tied back. And really, I see, I think when you look at informed consent, if you go back to it as a paper form or as a PDF or a Word doc or something like this, that works as a format to, to sort of like convey information, not thinking about like accessibility and stuff like that. But it's really, it's like what this needs to do now, it feels like it's more, it feels like it's more than that. And that's really like 
why we built consent kit is that it's actually we need to take this and like what's this what's the innovation inside informed consent and how can it react to these challenges it's not just transactional anymore it's more relational now and like what does that mean in in the the sort of myriad of contexts that we're going to to use this thing in yeah and it sounds like the and this is the way all things happen it's sort of a tumbler effect but that's what happened in my opinion with UX research repositories, right? Or this place to sort of centrally store, share, uh, reuse research data, right? Is that we were using a lot of the tools that what I would call just general business tools. You mentioned a lot of them already. Word documents, PDFs, spreadsheets, whatever the case may be to do that stuff. And then then all of a sudden this new problem surfaced where, yes, we have that and it's doing it quote unquote well enough until you realize that there are connections between these things that you can't make or you can't get easily without a bunch of additional effort. And it sounds to me that's what you're seeing and what is what's happening with consent now, particularly as people were focusing more and more on being compliant towards this with respect to GDPR. And Yeah, we, we, I was actually super curious about this. And one of the main things that we found really early doors, like we did a study around different organizations and like people within them and like, how long does it take to do consent? Because like, you've got a number of jobs wrapped around that, right? So you've got, there's obviously the writing of the consent form or even just finding the consent form. You've got to ask someone, you get someone else, or you're pulling other people off projects or what they're doing. That might take 20 minutes, half an hour or whatever, or maybe longer to get a response back. So you've got to find this form. And then once you've got the form, you need to then rewrite this form and like maybe change the content. And it has to, it has to hit these kind of points that you needed to hit. And that requires a bit of skill, but also like it's a bit, yeah, a bit of, sort of previous knowledge, but also it's again, it's more time to, to think through that stuff. Then you've got to get this form out to people to sign it. And then you've got to maybe chase people who haven't signed it. You've got to go through this process of being in your inbox, going through email chains and being like, have they signed it? Have they not signed it? Where's that up to? Like, what's going on with that? And then after the fact is if you're keeping compliant with GDPR, you have to log the fact that all of these things are happening. So you have to say, well, when did I ask this person? What did I ask them? What was the message that I sent to them? All of these different things. When you add all of these things up, we found that it was about four hours for every five participants who who were actually part in research. So you think about that in terms of it's all it's like we're, i think we're really good at designs become really good at looking outwards but when we start to look at our own processes it's like, wow this is actually really inefficient and that's probably the biggest like win that we found like almost straight away by solving like what are actually lots of like quite small uh, relatively straightforward to problems but it's like when you put them all together they become like i mean that's half a day you could have a day for synthesis it's like what kind of difference would that make for your research it's, it's crazy um, yeah i'm actually really glad to hear that you did that and, and tried to quantify it in that way because i actually think that as a UX industry, that's one of the things that we do not do well enough. And I'm and I say that blanket statement across the board. Because this comes back to this larger conversation too about UX research having a bigger seat at the table, having more strategic influence in the direction and decisions that are getting made. I wish more people would think that way. Because the same thing happens on sort of our end of the world is where you look at all the tools you're using. You mentioned data synthesis, collection, <laughs> capturing, searching. Every time somebody comes to you and says, Hey, Phil, can you get me all the research we did about X, Y, or Z topic? Just think about how much time it takes you. And, and even just if it was nothing other than remove the time, but even just the, the cost of a mental switch for you in all these different systems you got to look at, it adds up really quickly. And if you were to look at that at the end of a quarter, at the end of a year, I have a feeling that the number would surprise you. It would surprise a lot of people. Yeah, I think that context switch in particular is is massive. I mean, it takes, if, if I sort of switch from one thing to another thing, it takes me probably 20 minutes, 15, you know, 15, 20 minutes at least to, to get my head back into what I was doing. It's not like you, you get to stop doing the thing that you were doing to do this other thing. It's expected to continue doing that other thing at the same time. And I think as well with, with COVID and like with this switch to, to remote working, I mean, any, I say, even if I can give someone 10 minutes back, 
it's like a gift. Exactly. It's, that's that kind of context, which with everything else going on, even just like going through email chains and stuff like the amount of like cognitive load that takes is like, is huge. So that's one of the really, the biggest like feedbacks that we have from people is it, it's, it's just so easy to use. And it's just so much, it's so much, it just brings everything up for you. So it's like that you can see exactly what's going on at a glance. And I think really like all the tools that we're using, like the more that we can do that, like that time and efficiency is really the biggest and just headspace as well. Cause it's what we do is kind of like big stuff, right? It's like, you're taking in like loads and loads of different bits of information. You're trying to craft that into a story or into some kind of things. So, you know, your head is, that's really difficult work to do. And if you're going to just get distracted by, you know, I need to be back in my inbox, have this person done it, have they not done it or whatever. And that's taking, that's taking more and more time. It's yeah, it's just, it's, it's really destructive. I think not only just in efficiency in terms of time saved, but also like, it's like the opportunity cost of that. It's like what could you have been doing, which could have been further in what, what you're actually there to do, which is obviously great research. Yeah, of course. So that opportunity cost to me is the biggest one. I don't know if that's just because of my own bias or perspective, of course. But again, I come back to the synthesis one all the time, because that is actually the part that gets cut entirely or dramatically reduced almost every single time in research. And, and I think I feel like we all complain about it. We all say, I wish I had more time to sit with the data, figure out what it meant. But we're getting pushed and pressured and have to drive towards this answer to the question or the insights. And Okay, so when, what are the next steps? What are the recommendations? And it's those all just get better the more time you have to really sit, marinate with the data and figure it out what it is that you learned. But to your point, which is why I love that you brought this up, it's so critical to look at how our time is spent elsewhere. That yes, it seems, well, okay, I'm using quote unquote free tools, which by the way, they're never free. You're paying for them in some way. But I'm using this free tool to do this thing that costs me 10 minutes. I'm using this free tool to do this other thing that costs me 20 or 30 minutes. And if you do that, you start to scale it times two, three, four, five, you've lost a day or two. Boy, wouldn't it have been nice to have that day or two extra to sit with the data that you collected after you've done the research to really figure out what it meant. Like, what would that do for you? It's, it, and that's actually really hard to quantify because it is sort of a, a squishy, more ephemeral type thing. But the fact of the matter is that would have, I would place a high wager, a significant impact, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's harder to to see that. But I mean, it's really, what would you do? What would this thing be like for you? What would that, you know, those extra sort of four hours, what would you do with those four hours? Like, what would that be? And yeah, it's really one of the biggest wins that we can give people. If you're building any kind of technology, you're always trying to sort of innovate back to, to comfort. But I think to, to your point about scaling, um, scaling this as well, it's the next, just through the process of you figuring something out and figuring out a, work, a workflow almost by using these different tools. It's like you build up, you build up a lot of tacit knowledge about like how that workflow works right and that's the thing that you need to transfer to someone else to scale that thing and when the very first when we were doing these early prototypes with for consent kit we were we were looking at okay let's use you know google forms for example let's use a spreadsheet it works like this you need to then you know add these bits in or whatever and i found myself just writing tons and tons of like documentation and guidance but it got to the point where i was like well i haven't got time to read all this stuff and it's like i just want it to like work for me i want it to go and that was one of the things that led us to thinking, okay, well, how do we actually scale this thing? Like it worked great for me, or it, I could get it to work great for one person. But then you say, like, right now I need to roll this out to a team of 20 researchers. And then you just hit a whole bunch of other problems. And I think this is one of the main, was one of the main drivers for like why we went down this product route is that actually you can really onboard people to that very easily. And you can, it's a process that they can follow. You can guide them through that with the, with the design. So in, in a sense, an informed consent really is a process. It isn't just a single document. It's all of this other stuff around it. It's prompts to remind them to do things, remind them to delete the data and all this other stuff. So 
it's we've managed to get it down to a point where it was like literally i'm doing an interview and i need a consent form Boom, go that's 85 percent of the form generated and the remaining 15 percent we've given you prompts to say this is what you need to type into these these bits and it's just like super fast um and super easy and like the main thing is that it's just consistent as well so you have everybody who's doing it in the same kind of way and that's yeah i think that's really the thing is that that, that scalability of, of these things and being able to do that without without needing to just retrain people or how to do this stuff i think that's one of the big things about research ops that's that's so so exciting is that really recognition of we're, we're spending a lot of time doing this stuff and just figuring out process and stuff and if we can have something where that's sort of almost done for us or we figure out what those main processes are we're able to to automate those a lot or to a thing in place that we can sort of distribute consistently across the teams so yeah i think that's uh that's, that's huge yeah that's i mean it sounds really cool and that's one of those things too where it's make this really complicated hard to understand thing, just easy for me. Let me, honestly, and it's one of those things that you can't measure. It's making this really hard, complicated, maybe even time consuming thing easy for me that I can sort of offload that mental space to not have to focus on that, but then you free that up to do something else. One of the things I wanted to ask you is as with most things in the world, but particularly most things that we do in our profession in UX, the the conversation used to be like, how do I get somebody to care about UX? (laughs) Then it was, how do I get somebody to care about UX research? Now, it sounds like what you're tackling is how do I get somebody to care about consent? So I think most researchers, at least to some degree, care about consent. If they know about informed consent, awesome. But in what I would love to ask you is just how do I get somebody to care more about consent to, to actually do this if, if they don't today or if they don't recognize the need for it? Yeah, I think this is like a, an ethical maturity almost in any practice, not just in design, but really in anything. And it's like on some level, you just need to learn how to do the thing first. And then as you get up, you become more and more interested in in like things like ethics, for example, or things like compliance or whatever. You might get to a point in research and then something will take you interest and you'll be like, okay, I'm going to become about this or I'm going to get more, more interested in this. I mean, for me, with informed consent, it's just something that like we have to do. But but I think the we actually did a survey on Twitter. It was only like a really short, kind of short polls that you put out. And I was sort of curious about this to be like, why do people do, why do people get informed consent? Is it, is it because they have to do it and it's a legal thing or is it because it's the right thing to do and do, they, do people recognize that? Uh, and we got, it was like 97%, I think, of like respondents that came back were like, no, it's the right thing to do. I think, and so I think people do recognize that. And because you're really talking about someone's rights, like sort of like human rights, almost of the privacy and like what you're going to do with this data. And I think that's something which is more and more becoming on the, the radar about, okay, this is something that we need to think about. We need to care about this. In- inclusivity and stuff like that is super, super important. It has been forever, but it's, it's these seems, it seems to come in in like trends, if you like, or it becomes a more and more important thing as we become more mature in our practices. And that's something that really, I think that people really will, yeah, we'll just develop that really. They'll get that or, or, or maybe they do already, but it's just barriers. There's, there are barriers in the way to be like, actually, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do this or like how to do that. So what we've been trying to do is just really address those barriers and just remove as much friction from that as possible. And not just for the researcher, but also for the participant as well. Yeah, totally. Really happy to hear you bring up the one point there in particular, and it, it helps us be more equitable and inclusive on how we do research. We had uh, several episodes back now, but Alba Villamil on our mm-hmm. podcast, and you know, she, she does a lot of research with sort of like underserved populations, more vulnerable populations. And I think informed consent is one of the avenues in which you can do two things as a researcher. Number one, you can help build that that comfort and rapport with somebody to actually have a real human conversation with them, number one. But then number two uh, is it actually helps, it helps serve them better and help them understand their rights in that situation, which in a lot of those cases, in those underrepresented communities, that's not the case. I mean, traditionally, they just 
haven't been right and so this kind of helps empower them too with that which is uh, all going back to the answer you got which is it's just the right thing to do and i suppose if somebody doesn't care as much about that answer you can always then say well you'd probably get fined a boatload if we don't do this properly if we don't manage it properly after the fact so if all us fails i guess you can use the old carrot stick metaphor if you like but yeah i, I hate selling it on that because it's you, you just it should we should try to do this because we want to be better and we want to be fairer right and we'll be more equitable with people um but yeah there is that the fines are pretty massive in with GDPR. It's 20 million or 4% of like your global turnover or something like that. It's, it's, they're, yeah, they're really significant. Yeah, for sure. Well, Phil, this uh, very detailed, very thorough conversation about it's not easy and not clear topic for a lot of folks. This was pretty great. We're running up to the end of our time. And so I ask this every episode, of course. And so I want to ask the same thing to you of everything we chatted about. If somebody uh, came up to me and I had temporary amnesia or just completely forgot and somebody said, all right, Phil, what was that episode all about? Can you summarize that for folks? Yeah, the way that we're working is changing. And some of the, the things which enable us to do this work or the mechanics of the work almost maybe haven't necessarily been changing to adapt to those new needs. And obviously, there's a very, there's a very human aspect to informed consent, which is, which is super important and very central to it and the comprehension and things like that. But we, it's really like, how do we adapt and like move, move informed consent forward and, and evolve it so we can sort of continue to work in the ways that we're working and see the, the benefits of innovations in, in the field and also in other, other products and tools that we're using. Awesome. Very well summarized. And something I, I wanted to add, because you've brought this up a couple of times, innovating in that space is really interesting to me as we talked about efficiencies and inefficiencies, creating efficiencies with this frees up mental space, other energy to innovate elsewhere. Right. And I think that's a really interesting thing to let sit with folks who are listening and consider as an opportunity. But I do need to be respectful of your time because I know that we're running out of it here. But is there anything you want to share with folks today that we didn't already have a chance to cover? I think probably maybe accessibility would probably be the big one. Like I feel like I'm talking about this a lot at the moment. It always amazes me how inaccessible like a lot of things are and like in the, the sort of products and services that we're building. Because of COVID, this has been exacerbated even more. And obviously people are like physically restricted from going out. And if your only connection to the world is through a computer, it's, it's something that is is really important. And as we're doing research, if you're asking people if this thing that you're sending them, which represents their rights and their and is going to help towards their like kind of psychological sort of safety, if you like, or understanding what it is that you're there and what it is that you're doing, making sure that's accessible is like super, it's also really important because I think it's like 20% of people have some kind of accessibility need and by not ensuring that we're doing that's really excluding a lot of people from, from the processes. So yeah, I would say I just put that in, I guess, at the end, but something that I think is on our, it's been on our radar from day one. And yeah, I think it's something that's, again, like when we're not looking at our own processes or not you know, assessing our own processes too much. It's something that can be overlooked, but it's, uh, it's obviously very important. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Phil, this was a really good chat. I, I certainly learned a few things, even uh, though I work in a similar space. So I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your advice, answering the questions and uh, having a chat with me today. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. It's been really great. I'm a huge fan of the podcast as well. So I look forward to uh, future episodes. Awesome. I appreciate you saying that. All right, everybody, we will see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place so you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. 
If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius Podcast almost anywhere you listen to podcasts, like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for our email updates on our website.